Amen. Let's bow and let's pray as we prepare to hear God's Word. Father, we ask that you would humble us now to receive your Word. Lord, we pray that we would have our eyes fixed on Jesus, so we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that you'd remove any distractions from our, our minds and our hearts. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity as a church to study through the Gospel of Luke and we pray as we look at the life of Jesus, His ministry, His message, Lord, that You would grow us in our conviction and our, our certainty about Jesus and Your love for us in Christ. And Lord, we pray You would pull us away from any temptation to, to merely be familiar, even with this passage. And Lord, we ask You to use this to grow us in our faith in Jesus. And for those that are here that don't yet know Jesus, we pray for your Holy Spirit to bring salvation, to open up eyes and hearts this morning, to see the beauty and the glory and the power of the Lord Jesus and to trust in Him. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to preach your word. Lord, I pray you would use me this morning as your vessel to, to preach faithfully and joyfully in a way that is true and clear and helpful for this congregation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can you like Jesus, but not His message? I'm afraid there's a lot of people in our society who, who live in that way. And, and what I mean is this, the idea of Jesus can often be popular. The, the common view of Jesus is that He's a good teacher, He lived a good life, He's a good example, He did good things, He's an inspirational leader. If you were to ask the average person in Charlotte, I, I would guess many of them would have a positive view about Jesus. But then when we get to the message of Jesus, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, which starts with the bad news that God is going to judge us all for our sin against Him, that we're sinners, that God is right to, to judge us, that's who He is, and that the only way to be forgiven of our sin against God is to turn, to repent of our sin and trust in Jesus. That message, not popular. That message being proclaimed may often be labeled in our society as intolerant, extreme, narrow-minded. And so you see this dilemma. Jesus, he can often the idea of him be popular, yet his message rejected. Well, the life of a Christian, the message of the gospel reveals to us who Jesus is. You can't separate the two. Yet even as we look at the Gospel of Luke this morning, we see a group that likes Jesus at first. They like the idea that Jesus is coming to bring blessing and to do good things in Israel. But the more that He speaks, the less they like Him. And they go from being fans to would-be executioners. Turn with me, if you haven't already done so, to Luke chapter 4. Verses 14 through 44, we've been studying through the Gospel of Luke. If this is one of your first Sundays here, we are glad to have you. It's easy to jump right in to this sermon series. The best way to do that is to open up a copy of the Bible. If you want to use that one right in front of you in the pew rack, you can take that Bible, open it up to Luke 4. You can find that in your pew Bible on page 859, 859. And uh, use that Bible this morning. And if you don't own a Bible, take that Bible home with you as our gift to you. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 44, and let me give you the main idea of this passage up front. 
Here's the main idea. Jesus is God's promised Messiah filled with power and authority. Jesus is God's promised Messiah filled with power and authority. Well, Luke has has written this gospel as an orderly account of the good news of Jesus. And and the aim is to strengthen us in our faith, to help us grow in our comfort found in the person of Jesus Christ. And the order he's taken, we've seen recently, he went through the preparation for Jesus for his public ministry. So the baptism of Jesus, that first preparation where Jesus identified with us, he's truly man and he obeyed God's word going out to John the Baptist, and fulfilled righteousness there by being baptized. And then we also see that the second and final preparation and order that Luke gave it was the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, where Jesus defeated Satan in a face-to-face battle. With those stories having now been completed, the public ministry of Jesus starts here in Luke chapter 4, Verse 14, so it's a transition. We see the public ministry of Jesus. And keep in mind, we've said the gospel of Luke makes its way very quickly, like all the gospels do, to the cross and the empty tomb. You want to know who Jesus is and what he came to do? Look to the cross. Look to the empty tomb. And that's where Luke chapter 4, verse 14, as we see the first recorded public teaching of Jesus in the gospel of Luke It's going to point us even past the persecution we see in this passage, ultimately to the rejection that Jesus will face at the cross. As we make our way through this passage this morning, I want to give you the outline as we approach this passage, two important scenes that we see in the Gospel of Luke. First scene, verses 14 through 30, the proclamation of the kingdom. So we see in verses 14 through 30, the proclamation of the kingdom. And then in verses 31 through 44, and I'll repeat this when we get there, but the power of the king, the proclamation of the kingdom and the power of the king. Well, Luke traces the beginning of Jesus' public ministry there, starting in verse 14 with Jesus returning from the wilderness. And now he heads back to Galilee, which was a region of northern Israel that Jesus grew up in that area in Galilee. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness and was successful over Satan in that face-to-face battle. And here in verse 14, Luke states that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. As the Son of God, Jesus had a unique relationship with the Holy Spirit. He was anointed and empowered at His baptism, and that empowering was for His public ministry, which starts right here. And right off the bat, we see that the ministry of Jesus is centered around teaching. He's proclaiming. He's heralding the good news of the arrival of the kingdom of God in himself. He's preaching and he's teaching. Look at verse 15. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. He was sent to proclaim good news, that in him the kingdom of God had come near. And initially his ministry was received with some fanfare. He was being glorified, exalted by those who heard his preaching. But as we make our way through this chapter, we will see just how quickly that all changes. Things really change when Jesus returns 
to his hometown of Nazareth to preach. That's where he travels starting in verse 16. He went to the Jewish synagogue there in Nazareth on the Sabbath day, which was a Saturday, and he went there to, to teach. And here's the first recorded public teaching of the gospel in Luke. Jesus went to the synagogue in his hometown. Notice that he began to preach after a scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll, and his scroll isn't like the page of your Bible this morning where you can see chapter and verse. It just would have been text printed off there. But he ended up reading from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Now, this was intentional. So it's not like he just, you know, sometimes kind of you may find yourself opening the Bible and just like, I'm going to read exactly what I open up to. That's not, I think, what Jesus was doing here. This was intentional. He gets handed the scroll of prophet Isaiah, looks for this particular verse, this passage, and he reads it to reveal something about himself. Listen to what Jesus read starting in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now it's important to to note the context of Isaiah. The, the, The text in Isaiah was given to the southern kingdom of Judah to fill them with confidence and, and comfort in the Lord that he would end their captivity, would end their oppression, and would send their Messiah to save them, to restore the nation to glory. The poor, the afflicted, the oppressed that Isaiah was speaking about is Israel. That's who he specifically was speaking to. Now, due to their sin and the rejection of God and His authority, their breaking of, of God's law through His law to Moses, they rejected God's authority, rejected His rule over them, and they came under God's judgment in captivity. And through the prophet Isaiah, God promised that the Messiah would come and He would intervene. He would come and save the oppressed there in Israel. He will stand up for those under captivity and oppression. The poor, the captives, the the blind, and the oppressed, they all speak to one group in the book of Isaiah, and that's Israel, God's covenant people who were oppressed. The Messiah, the one anointed and, and set apart from God, Isaiah says, will come to proclaim good news. Notice that, come to proclaim. And here's Jesus in the synagogue in Nazareth. What's he doing? Proclaiming good news, teaching. This was the promised ministry that the Messiah would have when he would show up. And Isaiah says he comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor will be upon Israel. That could be an allusion to the year of Jubilee, which was a time on Israel's calendar of mercy and and grace when all debts were canceled and people celebrated God's mercy and His forgiving of debts. They celebrated and remembered that our God, that their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is a forgiving God, a merciful God. Now, Jesus intentionally chose to read this passage, Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. And then we read here again in Luke, in verse 20, He rolled up the scroll... And he sat down. 
It was the custom of that day for the rabbi when reading the scriptures to stand and when teaching to be seated. He read and then he sat down to teach. And his teaching is summarized here in verse 21. Here's the main message. Jesus had a main idea of his sermon. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, fulfillment, Isaiah 800 years prior, prophesying, looking forward to the Messiah. Jesus says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What he's saying, and they understood this, you're face to face with the Messiah. The long-awaited suffering servant of God that Isaiah looked forward to. The one who would come and proclaim good news. Who would usher in the kingdom of God. Who would set captives free. Who would stand up for the oppressed. Who would stand for the justice of God and bring peace from God. Jesus is saying, I am him. He's here. You've been waiting and anticipating and looking forward. This is the moment It's fulfilled in your hearing, Jesus, the Messiah. His teaching was very clear. He was ushering in a new age, the age of fulfillment, the age of the kingdom of God. Now, how you interpret this passage is is really important. So a wrong interpretation will lead you to a different understanding of the gospel, of who Jesus is, of what he came to do, and I think also a wrong interpretation of the church of Jesus Christ and what our mission is to be. So so answering the question, who are the poor, who are the captive, the blind, the oppressed? Is this a spiritual reference? Is this a physical reference? I think yes is the answer. I think it's both. I think it's both and. I think one is ultimate. I think the spiritual is ultimate, so let me get to that in just a second. But I think the answer is yes. And the best way to interpret Scripture is just to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So when you trace through the Gospel of Luke, you see Jesus healing the physically blind, yet ultimately He came for spiritual blindness, for a spiritual blindness that is blinded to God and to give sight to hearts. Jesus cared for the poor. He didn't overlook anyone. Those who were cast out by society, those who were oppressed uh, under physical bondage, like something like leprosy, who were literally cast out of the city, Jesus came for them. He didn't skip over them. He didn't neglect them. He didn't overlook them. There was no partiality that he he showed. He gave himself to sinners. He gave himself to the outcast. Yet, ultimately, he came to free people from spiritual captivity, the captivity of our, our sin that places us under God's judgment. He came to free you from the captivity and the oppression of the sinful nature. So Jesus comes to address real physical issues and real spiritual issues. The the spiritual and the physical both matter. Jesus heals the blind, giving them physical sight, yet ultimately he comes to give spiritual sight. Now, when Jesus was announcing his kingdom, his kingdom on earth, the kingdom coming in him, Israel, was under the oppression of Roman occupation. And again, that's why some were wrongly thinking when the Messiah came, primarily what he was going to do was physical. He was going to get rid of the Romans. 
that they were the enemies of God and His people, which they were. And they were thinking just really short-sightedly, well, when the King of God comes, Caesar and Rome thrown away, Jesus or God's forever king, if this is Jesus, they were thinking he was going to be the new king over Israel, Caesar's done away with, God's enemies forever done away with. When the Messiah comes, they thought immediately that would be the end of time. God's forever kingdom set up. What they didn't understand is that the kingdom of God was going to come and it was going to grow like a mustard seed, slowly over time. It might seem tiny and insignificant because Jesus came first to usher in not a physical kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom that would go to the ends of the earth. So often when we hear the word kingdom, we think of a physical place. To be sure, there is a kingdom of heaven right now this morning that saints are in glory with the Lord. There is a final kingdom that will be set up on earth. You can read about that later today in Revelation chapter 21, the new heavens and the new earth. But when you hear the kingdom, and we're going to see this concept throughout our study of the Gospel of Luke, what I want you to think about is the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. It's a spiritual rule and a spiritual reign over the heart of everyone who's repented and believed in Jesus. You might be familiar with John chapter 3 when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, and he was talking to Nicodemus about how it is that a person enters into the kingdom of God. Do you remember what he told Nicodemus the way into the kingdom of God is? You must be born again. And Nicodemus thought, well, that sounds strange. You're only physically born one time. How can you be born again? Are you going to enter back into your mother's womb and be born a second day? It was confusing to him. And Jesus was explaining this mystery. You must be spiritually reborn into a spiritual kingdom. You must be born again into the kingdom of God. So what I see here when Jesus is coming and he's proclaiming good news to the captives, his work supremely includes the ultimate liberty from sin and death and Satan. Most clearly, he came to free people under oppression and the power of sin and the judgment of God. By laying his life down and dying on the cross and rising from the dead, he sets people free from the power of sin. You're saved in the sense that you're saved from the judgment of God's wrath. And Jesus is the Messiah is coming to preach this reality and ultimately to lay his life down, to die on the cross, and to rise again from the dead. Now, this doesn't mean that physical realities of sin and oppression are, are unimportant. So certainly we trace Jesus' ministry. He, he doesn't have a ministry, nor do his apostles. And in Luke's second volume, the Acts of the Apostles, they don't have a ministry of social action. They have a ministry of proclamation, of making disciples, of spreading the good news of Jesus, of, of letting the call of the kingdom go out to the ends of the earth. But that doesn't mean that the physical realities of sin and oppression are unimportant or that they will be left unaddressed. His kingdom in the Gospel of Luke, it's just getting started. Already arriving in Jesus already received for those who repent and believe in Jesus, but not yet completed. There's a day coming when Jesus returns to earth a second time, when the blind will finally see, when the poor on earth will have riches beyond measure, riches in heaven that are unfading, that will never disappear or vanish, riches that will last forever. God will fix all of the injustice here on earth, 
all physical ailments, including death itself, will be done away with. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the last enemy to be defeated is death itself. Jesus already conquered death by dying on the cross and getting up from the dead. And when the kingdom finally arrives and is completed at the return of Jesus Christ, all things will be redeemed spiritually and physically. Amen? It's the kingdom of God. Well, this initial response, you might imagine, was overwhelming to the the group there in Nazareth. In verse 22, their initial response is one of amazement. Wow. He just opened up the scroll, Isaiah 61, God's suffering servant, and he pointed himself and said, today this is fulfilled. What that meant initially to them in their eyes is, wow, we are about to get blessed in Israel. Well, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want a blessing, particularly if you're thinking of blessing primarily as material blessing? But Jesus realizes this is a superficial response. I mean, their amazement in some part it seems to be attached to this was one of them. Jesus was from their hometown. They knew him for a long time. He, he was from Nazareth. They say in verse 22, is not this Joseph's son, which some scholars debate, was this a negative thing or positive thing? It might have been a little bit of both, but they're, they're connecting in one way or another. Hey, this is the guy who grew up around us, and now he's known for being this amazing teacher, and he just pointed to himself as fulfilling what the prophet Isaiah looked forward to. Yet Jesus, as the Son of God, perceived their hearts. He knew their amazement didn't mean they really believed in Him. This was a superficial response. He knew their hearts. And what He does here in verses 23 through 24, He quotes a proverb of that time. A familiar proverb of that time from my study this week was, physician, heal yourself. So when He's saying that, He's quoting a proverb they would have been familiar with. And in that day, people were skeptical of doctors and skeptical of medicine in particular. And they'd they'd often say, well, you take the medicine first to prove to me that I should take it. This would work. Physician, heal yourself. Show me, and then I'll take that medicine. Let me see if this medicine works on you first. And Jesus uses that familiar proverb to give a prophecy here. His words are prophetic. He understands they're looking at him with the same type of skepticism that was normally directed towards doctors. Physician, heal yourself. Jesus, prove yourself. Prove that you're the Messiah. Do some mighty works and miracles. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well, is what they're saying. It's a kind of skepticism which says, if I don't see it, I won't believe it. Some of you here this morning, you're you're not a Christian, and we're glad you're with us. You're you're welcome to be here as our guest. We hope you come here next Sunday. Coming to church is a great place to learn about who God is and what He's done in Jesus. But maybe that's your attitude. If I don't see it, I won't believe it. And you need to know that's actually not true. The story of the Bible, what more could Adam and Eve have seen They're in the garden, face-to-face with God, walking with Him and talking with Him. Yet they ultimately didn't believe God and didn't trust Him. What more did the nation of Israel need to see than being freed by the blood of the Passover lamb from slavery in Egypt, the Red Sea physically parted, passing through it, God taking the Red Sea, collapsing it on Pharaoh and their enemies, destroying the enemies of God. And did they believe? Well, they went 
and built a golden calf and worshipped a false idol. It's seeing. Don't fall into that trap of thinking that seeing is believing. Jesus says here in verse 24, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. He knew that they would not honor him as the Messiah. And it seems to be they're familiar with Jesus, and the familiarity with Jesus got in the way of them having faith in Jesus and believing in him for who he really is. And then Jesus cites next two examples of Old Testament prophets who also had no honor in their hometown, Elijah and Elisha. In verses 24 and then down in verse 26, in both cases, Jesus points out these prophets, they were rejected by Israel. That the Gentiles, the pagan nations surrounding Israel, were the ones who actually received God's prophets. For Elijah, in the midst of a famine in Israel, he was not received by the widows in Israel. But what rather, we read in verse 26, a widow named Zarephath in the land of, of Sidon. Jesus there referencing what we can read in 1 Kings chapter 17. He says a Gentile widow there in Sidon, which is a Gentile land, she's the one who received Elijah. Elijah was not received as a prophet in his homeland there in Israel, and therefore God sent him to a Gentile widow for her to receive God's blessing. Similarly, in verse 27, with the ministry of Elisha, also a prophet, Jesus refers to 2 Kings chapter 5. It was not the lepers in Israel that received Elisha, and were cleansed from leprosy, but rather Naaman the Syrian. Syrian, Syria from outside of Israel, a Gentile land. Naaman, a commander of the Syrian army, a, a Gentile. He was a leper that ended up getting cleansed. In both cases, Israel rejected the word of the Lord. God's prophets know honor or reception in their hometown, and therefore God sent his blessing to the Gentiles. Zarephath, Naaman, they heard the word of the Lord, they believed, and they were blessed. The contrast, why is Jesus quoting this? Well, he's speaking here to people in Nazareth. They were hearing directly from the Lord and not believing. And with that teaching, things changed drastically with the response of the crowd there in Nazareth. You may wonder, how did the crowd go from like speaking well of him and marveling at Jesus to being ready to kill him in verses 28 and 30? They're filled with wrath. They want to throw him off of a cliff. That was another option instead of stoning someone, which is to throw them off of a cliff like that. So effectively, they're trying to execute Jesus. Well, they got the message. They, they understood what, what I just tried to explain here, that this was a rebuke of them, that they were Israel, hearing the word of the Lord and not believing, and they would miss the blessing, and instead God would send this blessing of salvation, this blessing of the Messiah to the Gentiles, and they would believe. That's what God has always done. When His people reject His prophets, He sends the blessing elsewhere, and their attempt to kill Jesus shows the shadow of the cross, the trajectory of the path of Jesus at the very beginning of his public ministry. You see, the people in Nazareth were familiar with Jesus, but they did not have faith in Jesus. 
They were so familiar with him, being one from their hometown, they failed to see his greatness. They failed to see his grace and his mercy. They stopped marveling at Jesus. You know, I spent a good part of my childhood growing up in Florida. It's a beautiful place. I was right there around Tampa Bay, and there's often bridges you could drive across the bay, and we'd often go fishing. You could, you could throw a, a fish hook off any bridge there in the bay, just put a, a live shrimp on it. You could catch all sorts of fish there. It, it was a wonderful place to spend part of my childhood. But, you know, when you grow up seeing those sites, uh, those kinds of majestic sites, they just become normal. This is your life. This is just where you live. Uh, tourists would come there and be taking pictures and soaking in the scene. But if you live there, this is just your home. Yeah, I got to visit there just about a month ago and uh, watched a sunset over the bay and was blown away by the beauty of it. And I thought, why didn't we do this when I was a kid living here? Why don't we come look at these sunsets? Man, if, if I could live there now, I'd drive a couple times a week. Well, no, I wouldn't. I'd get there, I'd probably look at the sunsets at first, and after about six months, that would just be normal. It'd just be your normal scenery. You'd start to lose sight of the beauty and the majestic scenes all around you. You'd you'd end up losing an appreciation for those sights you see around you. Well, consider how being merely familiar with Jesus is such a dangerous place to be spiritually. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I, I, I... guess you're probably familiar at some level with Jesus. His name, maybe something of what he said, at some level maybe familiar, maybe even identify yourself with a particular type of Christian denomination or a place you went on on Christmas or some other time. The question about following Jesus is not are you familiar with him, but do you really have your faith in Jesus? But that's a question you have this morning, that if you really have faith in Jesus, we'd love to talk with you more about what it would look like to turn away from your sin and put your faith in Jesus this morning. He's the only way to be forgiven of your sins. He's the long-promised Messiah. He's come to set you free from the oppression of sin. All the problems in your life, all the problems in the world, they can be traced to the oppression of sin. And God has provided the one solution to sin in you and sin around you. It's Jesus. And therefore, you need to receive that gift. And the only way to receive that gift is to turn away from your sin, to seek forgiveness from God by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. He's the only way to God, the only way to heaven, the only way to be forgiven. And we would love to talk with you more about what it would look like to trust in Jesus today. Talk to someone who brought you here this morning, one of our members that's around you. But I don't want to stop there. Christian member of Oakhurst Baptist Church. Have you grown so familiar with Jesus that you rarely stand in awe of Him? You might be familiar with this passage in Luke. You may be able to teach it better than I can. You might have it memorized. Do we get so familiar with the songs that we sing? Do we get so familiar with the Lord's Supper? They're not marveling over the body of the Lord Jesus given for us, His blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. How marvelous it is that God saves sinners, that He's forgiven us of our sin. Are we so familiar with prayer that when we have long prayers, like a prayer of confession or a pastoral prayer, that we start to drift off and think about other 
things. Are we so familiar with the Bible? Maybe from good backgrounds of being taught the Bible that you open the Bible up in the morning and it just doesn't seem that interesting to you. It's a dangerous place to be. And let's be honest, we all get there at times. We tend to call it a desert. We tend to say things feel dry right now. It's a normal experience in the Christian life, but it's not one to be embraced and sat upon. The best thing that you could do this morning is turn and ask God to revive your heart, to to renew your heart, to understand the mercy of God today, to ask God to work in your life here today, to give you a greater sense of awe about who Jesus is, to ask God to strengthen your faith in Jesus. Well, the proclamation of the kingdom points to the arrival of the king, of King Jesus. We see a second scene, verses 31 through 44, the power of the king. That's second scene, verses 31 through 44, the power of the king. Jesus seems to have barely escaped with his life. We don't know exactly how he escaped. It could have been a miraculous kind of getting away from that mob, but he got away. And he continues on going down to the city of Capernaum. So the last part of chapter 4 gives an account of Jesus doing exactly what Isaiah 61 looked forward to. He goes about proclaiming, teaching good news, and we see the impact. Captives are set free. So Jesus' public ministry involved preaching of the gospel and performing miracles. It's my hope that as we spend time in Luke, we start to make sense of how these two are connected to show who Jesus is and what he came to do, to show the the person of Jesus and his kingly power. Now, you see several times in this section, the emphasis is on the power of the word. One place we see this emphasis on the power of the word is there in verse 32. And they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. What stood out about the teaching of Jesus, he had a teaching authority that was uncommon. And that day, rabbis would often get up and they would quote other rabbis. Or they would take Jewish tradition and expound upon the tradition. But when Jesus got up, he had a teaching authority because he spoke on his own authority. You might recall in the the Sermon on the Mount, the pattern of how Jesus preached. He would say, you have heard it said, but what? But I say to you, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He points to himself as the authority. Jesus spoke with authority as the Son of God. He is God, and therefore, he talked as God. His power and authority was demonstrated by the miracles he performed. So so take his teaching authority and Take the power of of miracles and and healing and don't disconnect those two things. Both of those demonstrated who Jesus is. So we have two miracles mentioned here in verses 31 through 41. The casting out of a demon and the healing of Simon Peter's mother-in-law, the apostle Peter. Consider what both of these miracles display. They both display the power of King Jesus, the power of his word. The power of Jesus over the physical realm and the spiritual realm. The power of Jesus over demons, spiritual realm, sickness, physical realm. In the first miracle there in verse 33, Jesus teaching in the synagogue 
is interrupted by a demon-possessed man. That would have been a crazy service to have attended. He's teaching, someone cries out, it's a demon-possessed man. Now, demon possession is real. This is not just another way of describing mental illness. Mental illness is a real thing. That's not what's happening right here. Demon possession. It happened in the Bible. It still happens today. This is demon possession. Servants of Satan, fallen angels, they're of darkness, who can possess people who do not belong to God, who are not filled with the Spirit of God. If you've got the Spirit of God in you, you can't be possessed by the evil spiritual forces of the demonic. The first miracle here, we see the episodes here in the gospel, this is a, a real spiritual battle, but the first episode here, the demon, he knows who Jesus is, the Holy One of God, and this demon's fearful that Jesus came to destroy him. But don't take this as a fear of reverence and all. This demon has no faith in Jesus. This demon's not worshiping Jesus or ascribing worth to him. Jesus was preaching the word in the synagogue, demonstrating the power of his word and casting out the demon. Merely by the power of his word, he casts out that demon. Jesus says, be silent and come out of him. And what happens? In verse 35, the demon comes out of him. And notice the response in verse 36. They were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Well, who has authority over the spiritual realm? God does. God has authority over everything, physical and spiritual. Who has authority over the spiritual realm? God does. Their response, this must be the Son of God. Next miracle, verse 38, Jesus shows his power over the physical realm. The Simon again mentioned here is Peter. His mother-in-law is sick with a high fever. It's not like a fever today. Well, Take two Tylenol and wake up from a nap, and that fever likely will come down. Fevers in those days were often deadly. So a picture here is a woman on her deathbed. There's nothing they can do to save her life, and so they go to get Jesus. And again, how does Jesus heal her? The power of his word. Look at verse 39. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve him. Who has authority over sickness and death? God does. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. God has authority over sickness and death. The response, this must be the Son of God. Verse 40, after the sun goes down, they're on the Sabbath. That's what it was. Sun goes down, Sabbath is over. In response, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases, brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. He is the Son of God. Now, Christian, it's important to know Jesus still heals. He's still in the business of healing. James chapter 5, we see direction uh, to go and pray. You can approach the elders here. We will pray for those who are Sick. Now, we should never approach God in our prayers for healing as a test. God, if you really love me, well, then you're going to free me from this doctor's diagnosis. That, that is not a prayer of faith or trust. That's a prayer of, of testing. We should know 
Jesus is still in the business of healing. I don't believe that anyone in this room has the power to touch you and heal you. I don't understand that the Spirit still gifts people in that way. But I do understand that Jesus sits on the throne this morning and he heals. And we can pray in the name of Jesus like I did in the pastoral prayer and ask God to heal physically sick people. We also know that any healing that Jesus graciously gives here on earth is temporary. Here's what I mean by that. Everyone Jesus healed went on to die of something else eventually. He raised Lazarus up from the dead. He really came back from the dead. Four days down, body decomposing, came back from the dead. Jairus' daughter, back from the dead by the power of Jesus. And they went on to die of something else later. Because of the curse of sin, it has been appointed unto man once to die. Every one of us has a day appointed for our death unless Jesus returns first. Everyone who was healed by Jesus went on to face something else. That tells us eventually there will be a prayer for healing that Jesus chooses not to answer by temporary earthly healing. But for those who've trusted in Jesus, he will answer by eternal healing. A day when death and disease and tears and sorrow and cancer and heart disease and all sorts of things will be no more done away with. No more funerals. Jesus already paid for that by dying on the cross and getting up from the dead. But Christian, brother and sister in the Lord, come to the Lord now. He still heals. The one who's risen up, ascended to the right hand of God, he's still in the business of hearing your prayers and healing. This power demonstrated in this section, it points to the person of King Jesus filled with power and authority. Jesus is the Son of God. It's just the main idea of the Gospel of Luke. Over and over, who can heal by the power of His Word? God can. Jesus must be God. In verse 41, we see the demons even recognize who Jesus is. Many demons crying out, you are the Son of God, which helps us know that acknowledging Jesus as the Son of God with merely your words is not enough. James says you believe in one God, good. Even the demons believe and shudder. These demons were not worshiping Jesus. They were not glorifying Jesus. They were not trusting Jesus. They were not praising Jesus. They certainly were not submitting to Jesus, which seems to be why Jesus rebuked them and would not allow them to speak. Yes, they knew he was the Christ. Yes, they knew he was the Messiah. But Jesus would not have demons announce his arrival. (laughs) In the closing scene in verses 42 through 44, we see the people of Capernaum, they didn't want Jesus to leave. Why would they? I mean, think about the riches that would abound having Jesus with you. Man, you wouldn't get sick. If anything bad happened, he's right there. Don't leave us. We want the blessing of Jesus and his presence here with us. Stay here. Help us. Heal us. But Jesus withdrew to a desolate place, presumably to pray. And he refused their request for him to stay, saying in verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Jesus didn't come down to earth just to heal the sick, just to give physical sight to the physically blind. He came to die. He came down to earth to save, to forgive. 
And all that we see here in the Gospel of Luke points to Jesus and His mission to die on the cross, to rise again from the dead, the proclamation of His mission there to repent and believe in God, to put your faith in Jesus Christ, to receive salvation and enter into God's kingdom. And so His priority was to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And therefore, one clear takeaway for us, church, that should be our priority too. We are to bear witness of the kingdom of God. This is a group in Charlotte that is called specifically to bear witness of the kingdom of God, that the king has come, that Jesus came, that there's salvation and forgiveness of sins in him, to call people in this city to repent and believe. That's our mission. Indeed, to spread this mission, this message, to the ends of the earth. That's our joy, that's our work, that's our privilege, that's our obligation and responsibility as as Christians. It's there to bear witness to the kingdom of God. And also, I would say, with all the greatness we see here about mission, our mission is a joyful mission. It's hard work. It requires sacrifice. We'll experience rejection. Jesus was not popular among some, and neither will we be if we lovingly speak the truth of the gospel to those around us. But even in those moments of rejection and hardship for representing Jesus, even in those moments when our prayers aren't answered in the way that we want, in the time that we want, for physical relief of sickness and ailment and challenge and hardship in this life, we have comfort in Jesus and who He is. Luke wrote this gospel to appoint Christians to hope in Jesus, to help us grow in our confidence in Jesus. You know, a pastor friend of mine, he asks the question often, are you still glad you're a Christian? Which when he first asked me that, it seemed like an odd question. Like, why is he asking me that? Are you still glad you're a Christian? I said, yeah, yeah, I am still glad. He said, you know, I, I ask people that all the time in my church. Are they still glad they're a Christian? Are they still in awe of Jesus? Are they still joyfully walking with Lord, are they still living in light of the marvelous truth of what it means to be a child of God, having been forgiven of your sins, filled with the Spirit of God, counted righteous all because of Christ, His righteousness credited to our account, that we're not worthy of any of it. We're not worthy of forgiveness. We're not worthy of salvation. We're not worthy to call ourselves Christians. Are you still glad you're a Christian? I think it's another way of asking Christian how does what we heard this morning about Jesus, how does that make a difference in your life today? How does it make a difference in your thoughts? How does it make a difference in the way that you seek to endure hardship and trial and temptation? Is Jesus on the forefront of your mind? No matter what's going on in your life, that His grace is enough His love is enough. All that you need, meaning what you truly need, God has provided in Christ. Forgiveness of your sins is what you need, and God was so gracious to give that to you. Righteousness from God's throne is what you needed, and God's already given that to you. We can turn to God in our fears. We can claim the name of Jesus in the midst of fear and failure and trial and temptation, sickness. We can entrust ourselves to His ongoing care. We can have hope in the midst of hardship that the same power that set us free from the captivity of sin is with us now. 
Christ is with us always to the end of the age. So maybe a good prayer for you and I to pray that this might make a difference in our life today, Christian, is to ask the Lord to renew your sense of awe in Jesus, to revive your heart to stand in awe of Him. Let's do that now. Father, we ask as a church that you would renew our sense of all of Jesus, of His grace, His mercy, and His kindness. Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to revive our hearts, to stand in awe of Jesus. We pray you do that now. We pray as we close out singing, as we close out in a time of silent prayer, even in our conversations afterwards, Lord, that you would point us to the joy found in belonging to Jesus. And we pray we'd be reminded that's more than enough. All that we have needed, you've provided. We ask you to come and revive us anew for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.